I'm Emma. And I'm Colin. And this is Frederick Uncut. Where we talk about what you're curious about across the county with a new episode every week. This week, as the days are getting shorter and temperatures continue dropping, many begin to experience the symptoms of seasonal affective disorder. Dr. Kelly Donahue of Everyday Therapist and Frederick describes symptoms like over or undersleeping and overeating that might begin to show themselves in the winter months and what you can do to create positive thoughts and mindsets in the coldest winter days. So we're here with Dr. Kelly to talk a little bit about seasonal affective disorder and what that might mean for people, how they might experience it, and and what people can do. So could you just talk a little bit about what seasonal affective disorder is? How do you define that? How can we recognize it? Sure. Um, Thanks so much for having me, first of all. And seasonal affective disorder is really, it's a conglomeration of symptoms, such as feeling depressed most of the day, having low energy, having problems sleeping, which can mean sleeping too much or sleeping not enough, having difficulty concentrating, experiencing changes in your appetite and weight, which usually means eating more and gaining weight, Um, feeling tired or low energy, feeling kind of hopeless, just not wanting to spend time with others, not feeling very motivated. So as you can see, those are kind of very general symptoms. And To meet the technical diagnostic criteria for seasonal affective disorder, you have to have those symptoms in the winter months for two years prior to the the initial or to this onset. Um, However, I don't tend to just use diagnoses in my treatment of others. So I like to say, if you have some of those, even if it's not all of those, even if it's just a handful of those, there are definitely things that we can do to help you feel better. You said for two years, Mm -hmm. for two years straight going back or just the two seasons? Just in the winter, right? So to technically meet the diagnostic criteria, it has to be just in the winter for two years prior. So it's a diagnosis of depression with a seasonal component. Um, so, but it's been termed seasonal affective disorder, and many people just know it as the winter blues. That's kind of a, a more common way of thinking about it. I have to ask you this because I asked Emma this earlier, and she just kind of said, "I don't think you're right, Colin." But can you have this uh, in the summer? I, I've read that there's a summer version of this as well that that has something to do with the heightened anxiety. Yeah, so technically you can, although it is much, much, much rarer. And I've never actually seen a client in my practice with the summer component of seasonal affective. But it uh, is possible. It is possible. Okay. Technically, it is Wait, possible. So why is this? I Because my understanding is it's connected. I don't know. But as it's connected with the seasons changing. It's winter. It's darker. The days are shorter. I mean, what is it about the environment change that gives this response in some people. Oh, you are right on it, Emma. So, so much of it comes from having less sunlight. As the winter months go on, the days get shorter and shorter as we all feel, and we're very close to super short days now. And that lack of sunlight affects our body in a number of ways. So it affects our circadian rhythm, which is when we are prompted to wake up and feel like going to sleep. It can kind of mess with that. Um, It also can affect our serotonin levels. And serotonin is a neurotransmitter, which is just a fancy name for chemicals in the brain. And serotonin is correlated with our level of happiness. So without as much serotonin in our system, we are going to feel less happy. So the daylight or lack thereof definitely affects that. In addition, the lack of daylight messes with our melatonin levels. And melatonin, as you may know, is something required to help us sleep. 
So it's, it's kind of having an effect on both of those chemicals. Um, and then in addition, if we're outside less in the sun less, we're going to produce less vitamin D. And vitamin D is also important for brain health and feeling good, and it helps to keep our immune system strong. Hmm. So then how, you know, how do you recommend some treatments uh, throughout the winter? Obviously, the days get shorter, as you said. So how can you kind of give yourself more light? That's a great question. And so I think there are two major ways. One is taking advantage of the natural light that's there, which means trying to get outside in the morning. Even if it's not super sunny out, going out first thing in the morning can help to reset your circadian rhythms. Uh, taking a walk in the morning is great. Get some activity in there with the light. Um, and then the second way is to use artificial light. So there are things called sunboxes. In fact, when I was initially pulling this research together and this presentation together, I found out that there's a sunbox company right here in Frederick. Um, but they these lights are small. They can be kind of tabletop lights. And the idea is that if you expose yourself to the light from these sunboxes, sunlights, um, for 20 to 60 minutes every morning, that you'll see benefits in two weeks because using the light is doing a lot of the things that the natural light would be doing. So it's helping to reset that circadian rhythm, boosting serotonin, regulating melatonin. Outside of the lights and, and that whole issue, you know, you talked about overeating, you talked about sleeping. What can you do to kind of help that um, if, if you're experiencing some of those symptoms? Yeah, well, you know, there's one theory that overeating or eating carby, rich, sugary foods is sort of an adaptive response because, in fact, those things at some level do stimulate um, our serotonin production and they do give us a little boost of energy, but it's only temporary. It's followed by a pretty big crash. Um, there's also some research that indicates that perhaps we were programmed to eat these things because we were kind of storing up and saving up during the winter. Um, but I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that we are just less active. We're probably inside more. So we're probably just eating more of these types of foods. In addition, they're around. Um, you know, walking through the office building, you see cookies out and people are baking more. Um, there's a lot of holiday foods that are much richer mm -hmm. and there aren't as many farmers markets. And it's, it can be easier to, to get those types of healthier foods in the summer. You have to work a little harder to do it in the winter. So what do you see in Maryland? Because you work here in Frederick and also in Bethesda. What do you see in Maryland and like is it right in assuming, you know, like in a place like Michigan, where I'm from, these things are a lot more common or and that like in California, maybe we should all just move there and <laughs> um, enjoy the sunlight there. I mean, yeah. uh, do you do you can you comment on like how the it might be different depending on where you live and what it's like, particularly in Maryland? Yeah, sure. So there's definitely a difference as you move further north and further south from the equator. So they looked at the uh, prevalence of seasonal affective disorder in Seattle and compared it to Miami. And seasonal affective disorder, like the official disorder, not just the symptoms, but the full-blown disorder, was nine times more prevalent in Seattle than it was in Miami. So that's not even all of that far apart, but you can see that the, the colder weather, the lack of light really makes a difference. Mm. And so in Maryland, I mean, we're sort of kind of in the middle of those two places. So I think that we, we definitely see the effects on people here. Right. Yeah. 
How about um, children? Like when you talk about parents and if you're a parent and you see your child maybe express some of these symptoms, what would you recommend parents do? Well, right. And especially if you're thinking about a kid who gets up to go to the bus and maybe it's still dark and then they've got some kind of practice or something after school, they get home, it's dark. Um, what can you do for your for your kid just to get them more active in the winter or I don't know. Yeah, and I think a lot of the same recommendations that we can give for adults can be true for kids too, but the adults kind of have to be the one to encourage the kids to do it. So I think making the house light in the morning when they get up and kind of creating a really nice bright environment to help reset their circadian rhythm, you know, taking them outside with you to walk the dog in the morning would be really good. Also, making sure that we keep them active. So it's it's a little more difficult in the winter, or it can be. But I think it depends on how we think about it and how we reframe our thoughts and what our mindset is about the winter so we can have a really good attitude about it and and say, okay, this is an exciting time for us to explore new things and um, try some new activities. Or we can think like, oh, we're just going to be stuck inside for the next four months and it's mm-hmm. going to be terrible. But I think some of the things that we can do are things like winter hiking, taking advantage of ice skating. And, you know, we have some ski slopes that aren't all that far from here for skiing and snow tubing and snowshoeing and and things like that, that combine being outside in nature with being in the sun, with being active, with connecting with other people. I mean, that's really just a really good way to go. And then I also think thinking about things that don't require extra layers of clothing that you can do inside, like going to a rock climbing facility or a trampoline park or roller skating or bowling. It's really important for kids to be able to move around and kind of express themselves through movement. So those are some ideas. Is there a certain demographic, you know, we're talking about children now, but uh, is there a certain demographic that might be more likely to suffer from this? Well, the research shows us that it usually affects people who are ages 18 to 30, at least for kind of the first big episode. And then it sort of tends to wane as people age past 30. So 18 to 30 is kind of the primary risk time for that first bout of seasonal affective. And why is that? Does the research show anything? You know, I think part of it has to do with just it being most recognizable in those people. You know, we were talking about kids and and they might not come forth and say, hey, I'm just feeling really sad. I'm, you know, I'm just feeling really down or lethargic today. But as you get to adulthood, I think people become more aware of their patterns and are more able to recognize it and to seek help for it. Do you uh, do you have with this who who have this? I I see a lot of patients who experience this as a component of something larger. Mm. So we do know that individuals who have depression or bipolar disorder um, or even anxiety are more likely to experience seasonal affective disorder. So this could be because of a genetic component. um, And it's often a component of how the people are thinking and how they're expressing their emotions and how they're behaving. So if they're naturally more inclined to think negative thoughts or to want to stay not as engaged with the community or family or activities, then those um, potential things we talked about for the winter will only make them want to stay in more and, you know, eat less healthy and all of those things. So I think it just kind of exacerbates an existing component of a condition. So were there other things like life events or even just other things a person might be dealing with in their health that can kind of bring this about? Or are there other 
factors that can make someone become more at risk? That's a really good question. So we know that depression in general is tied to inflammation in the body. So there are a lot of other chronic diseases which are produced because of inflammation. So things like um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, that's a really important um, component in a comorbid condition with seasonal affective and depression. Um, there are also things like having high levels of mercury in your body or toxic metals that can contribute and sort of mimic um, some of these seasonal affective symptoms. So it's always a good idea to kind of get a thorough checkout by mm -hmm. your primary care doctor to check for some of these things um, before you go into kind of the psychotropic medication side of things. Right, because you mentioned like a certain mindset. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, what other things would you say when you're when you're thinking about the mindset that we should be in? So we know that our thoughts influence how we feel, and how we feel influences how we behave. That's sort of been proven. Um, so if we're if we're feeling sad, and the result of our sadness is that we're inactive, isolating ourselves at home, we have to look back and say, okay, what's the thought that's driving that feeling? So the thought might be, it takes too much energy to go out. No one's going to want to talk to me anyway. I really don't have that many friends. So you can see how if you're thinking those thoughts, you're going to feel pretty sad and depressed and not want to go out. So it, it sort of goes back to looking at those thoughts and figuring out what thoughts would make me feel in a way I want to feel. And maybe it's not happy and elated, but maybe it's just, I want to feel decent. I want to feel good. I want to feel motivated. So if you were to have if you were to want that feeling, Emma, I'm going to put you on the spot. What kind of thoughts would you need to be thinking? To make myself feel happy? Uh-huh, to make yourself feel happy or at least not sad. Um, I don't know. I would have to think about, like, maybe I want to go see a friend. Like, that yeah. would make me yeah. happy. Like, things I would want. Yeah, so, like, things like, like you would have the thought maybe that, hey, I can do something yeah. to feel better, right? Yeah. Like I can control this a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the more we become aware of those thoughts and how they contribute to our feelings and our actions, the more power we have to change them. Because oftentimes the thought comes in and we jump to emotion or behavior and we don't even realize that there's a thought behind that. Mm. But most often there's some sort of thought that's driving that. So this is mindfulness. Right? It's a little bit of mindfulness, exactly, because you need to have that awareness of what's going on. So you bring up another great treatment, which is mindfulness and meditation. <laughs> um, and really, those are powerful for a number of reasons, but related to what we're just talking about, mindfulness and meditation help us to put a pause between that thought and emotion and the subsequent behavior. So we get good at kind of noticing our thoughts through mindfulness and meditation. And then that helps us not to jump into a uh, bad emotion or inactivity because we, we have a little more awareness. So if I notice that I'm thinking a lot of like, I don't want to go outside, I'm going to have to put a coat on, I don't know where my boots are, <laughs> it's really wet. Like, how can I change my thoughts, but still be like, those are my thoughts. That's what I think. I can't change what I think. But Oh, but you can. Oh, <laughs> but, but I you know can. I can. Right. <laughs> so how do I totally flip 
that without being like disingenuous like that's how I feel about it (laughs) (laughs) well the first part is something that you already have so you have that awareness that you're having these thoughts and then the next part is saying okay like being kind to yourself because beating yourself up because you're having these thoughts isn't going to help anything you're so dumb for Uh, thinking that it's cold out (laughs) right like that's going to help you feel better not so much so really um, if you were thinking, okay, Emma, I understand why you're thinking this. You're from Michigan. You know, it's snowy. It's cold. It's, it's a usually... shot at Miss- Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> she like... brought it up before. <laughs> yeah. um, then that's right. So that's not going to help you. Mm-hmm. So by reframing it and trying a new thought, you can see how that will make you feel. And in the beginning, it's not going to feel completely authentic. But again, you don't need to jump to winter is amazing and I love it. It could be, I'm going to put my coat on and go outside because I know I'm going to meet my friends and that'll be fun. Yeah. Right. Or it takes me two seconds longer in reality to zip my coat than it does to walk out without a coat. Yeah. And these things need to be practiced. So these negative thoughts, whether it's about winter or about our life or how we are in general have been really well practiced and our brain is super efficient at producing those thoughts. So if it wants to produce a new kind of thought and make that the automatic thought, it needs practice. Just like we need to practice for a new language or to learn a new sport, we actually have to practice new thoughts too. Well, I, that kind of leads to something I had down. Uh, I was on your website. I keep hitting my glasses on the microphone, so that's good. <laughs> Uh, so I was on your website mm-hmm. earlier today before you came in and you said that you like to help people, uh, make real sustainable change in their life. Yeah. Uh, the, the sustainable part that that's sort of the operative word in that sentence, I think, how is it just a matter of practice? Like you were just saying in terms of keeping it sustainable, what other things can you do to, to kind of make sure you can be consistent in change? Yeah. The practice is a huge part. But I think why so many people fall off the wagon with making healthier changes is that they dive in at that level of behavior. They just say, okay, I'm, I've decided I'm going to run the Frederick Half Marathon next year. Like, let's go. But they don't back up and think about how do I need to feel in order to actually get up and train every day? Mm-hmm. And then what do I need to think in order to produce that feeling? So again, it sort of comes back to the thoughts and the belief systems. So we fail to sustain these healthy changes when our new behaviors don't match our existing thoughts and belief systems. Your body is like, whoa, those behaviors are just way too inconsistent with what you're thinking, with what I'm thinking on a regular basis, with what I've been practiced to think on a regular basis. Let's reel it back in. Let's go back into our comfort zone and just do what we know. Because again, our brain likes what's efficient. It likes to be familiar. So you have to recognize that there's going to be a bit of discomfort as you work through that, as your new behaviors catch up to your new thoughts. So once they're consistent, then habits are formed and it becomes easier to do the exercise or to eat healthier or whatever it is. So that's one component. Wait, so should I do one before the other? Fix my thoughts and then change the behavior? Or is it at the same time? Oh my gosh, you guys are asking such excellent questions. (laughs) Yeah, so it's really, it can be a two-pronged approach. So we know that thoughts lead to our emotions and lead to our behaviors. And I'm going to be very redundant on that because it's so important. But there's also a principle in psychology called behavioral activation. 
And this is the idea that we have to do something in order to feel a certain way. So we can't just sit on the couch and wait to feel like going to train for our half marathon. We have to get up and start doing the training and then we're going to feel good. So you can work that thought, emotion, behavior chain kind of forward and backward to get you the results that you want. My question in terms of, we're talking a lot about behavioral behavioral uh, therapy and, and sort of things we can do with our thoughts and, and you, you keep going back to that. But how does that counteract the chemical imbalance when in somebody's brain and in somebody's body? Like how, if, if the chemicals are off, uh, it, yeah, my bra- what if my brain is working against me? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's there is actually some controversy about how much of depression and anxiety is tied strictly to brain chemistry. We know that that is a likely component. But for example, there's been studies that have shown that exercise is just as effective as antidepressants. So the theory might be then that some of these lifestyle medicine types interventions that we're talking about with nutrition and activity and getting good sleep and connection and changing your thoughts, that they actually work at the level of the brain. So we know that our beliefs actually produce neurochemicals, which is just crazy. The first time I read that, I was like, whoa, I have to go back and read that again. So if you think about that, then that means our thoughts are probably doing the same thing because our beliefs are really just a collection of our thoughts. So we can think about the neurochemicals as a way of increasing our mood, right? So the more healthy thoughts we have, we're likely to have healthier neurochemicals. And here's where nutrition is a really big component too. Getting um, really good protein and fat. Fat used to be you know, the, the demon of the nutrition world. And now we're recognizing just how important good fats are and good proteins, especially tryptophan, which is an amino acid that's part of like eggs and fish and turkey. Um, they are precursors to some of these neurotransmitters in the brain. So we need those in order for our brain and body to produce these chemicals in our brain. So I think I'm curious about, I mean, when you think about right now and when you're thinking about this particular disorder or maybe just, you know, seeking out help in general, it's something that's become way easier to talk about and, um, you know, way more acceptable. I mean, do you see more people just coming to you in general or particularly, you know, in in the season when, when things start to get difficult, do you see people being more open to reaching out for help and, and things? like that? Have you noticed any shifting trend in that way? Well, I've noticed that there's definitely more information available. Social media can be both positive and negative for this kind of thing. But I think one of the benefits is that it makes us more aware of it. Um, The danger is that it also tends to just show people when they're doing their highlight reel. So the times when they look their best and feel their best, and you know, that can be potentially damaging. But sometimes actually that brings people in too, because they're like, I want my life to be like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) After we get past the part that that's a fallacy and that's not really happening, then we can work on some of these sustainable changes that Mm -hmm. they can make. So I think, you know, there is uh, more awareness around it and Mm -hmm. there's, there's still some stigma, unfortunately, but I think that the stigma is definitely lessened. Hmm. I want to go back to something you said before about sort of the tie between seasonal affective disorder and depression. Mm -hmm. 
can you have one without the other? The way you were talking before, it sounded like you couldn't. You 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 are both depressed and you and you suffer from seasonal affective disorder. But could you just have seasonal affective disorder? So okay, so this is where we get into the technicalities. So Ooh. according to the the DSM five, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it's sort of the bible for figuring out what symptoms go together and giving you a diagnosis for a person. According to that. You need to have these, this kind of this depression, or this underlying depression that gets worse in the seasons, in the fall and winter especially, for over two years. But again, I think that we don't need to wait until a person meets that criteria. We can call it the winter blues. We can call it feeling sad. We can call it whatever we want to call it. But I think the thing to remember is that there are real ways to feel better and improve your symptoms, whether you have six of those symptoms or eight of those symptoms, or you've had them for a year and a half or nine years. There's definitely things we can do to help that. Okay. Does this affect, I, I read on the internet that this affects women more than men. Whoa. Is that true? Is that ding, true? ding, ding. Is you that are true? correct. And yeah. why? Uh, yeah, exactly. So... As with many things in um, medicine and mental health, we find we tend to find that women uh, have a slightly higher prevalence of these types of things. And there are a number of reasons why. My own theory and what I've seen is that women are more likely to come forward um, and talk about how they're feeling. Women are also, and again, this is a gross overgeneralization, I realize this, but from what I see, Women are more likely to be in touch with how they're feeling and therefore to know. So I don't know how I feel. Do you? There, how are you uh, feeling right uh, now? Uh, pretty bad. <laughs> Toxic masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> so women are more in touch with their feelings. They can be. Women can be more in touch with their feelings. And also women are more likely to reach out and get help when they are struggling. And so I think that that's why women are diagnosed with it more mm -hmm. because they tend to be the ones to seek care. So that doesn't mean that men aren't suffering just as much, but they're le they're less likely to reach out for care or more likely to medicate or try to deal with the issue in other ways. Like self-medicate. Like self-medicate, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead, Emily. Are there other... Um, like when you think about mental health, other mental health issues that can arise seasonally, or is this kind of the thing? This is pretty much this is the biggest one. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we also have to keep in mind that the holidays themselves can bring depression and anxiety, depressive and anxiety symptoms kind of separate from seasonal affective, just from the pressure that we can put on ourselves to have a perfect holiday. Um, you know, we often get together with extended family and that can be very stressful for a number of reasons. And the holidays can also be hard for people who have lost loved ones. It's kind of a time when we're reminded of that. So I think, you know, acknowledging that and being willing to talk about that or write about that or just express that emotion in some way can be helpful. Do you see, and this is kind of really one of the last questions that I have, because I think this is kind of the last statement on it on some level but it is like once you get it is there a surefire way to for the rest of your life be 100 percent cured is this something you will always have to fight each season is this something that you can rid yourself of i think that if you engage in a lot of these lifestyle medicine 
components, these behaviors that we've been talking about. If you really focus on getting good sleep, eating high quality foods, connecting with others, um, working on how you change your thoughts, you're going to feel better. And I think that your symptoms will be less likely to surface during the winter. Uh, I'm a very happy, positive person, but I feel a little a little more down. It takes a little more energy to kind of feel that way. And I have to do some extra things. I have to make sure that I'm getting out to get a walk each day um, in the morning when, when that's possible. And so I think that, I don't know that you can say you can cure it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think cure is kind of a tricky word, but I think that if you do some of these things regularly, your whole outlook is going to improve, whether it's the summer or the fall or the winter. That's fair enough. Emma, do you have anything? No, I mean, thank you so much for coming in. Is how can people reach you and how can what what should people do if they if they think that this might be affecting them? Yeah, well, if you think this might be affecting you, you can feel free to reach out to me. Um you can find me on my website at everydaytherapist.com and my most recent blog is a presentation that I did on seasonal affective disorder. So, it has a bunch of the information that we talked about here in case you were driving or walking or otherwise unable to take any notes so you can check it all out there um, you can also reach me at dr kelly at everydaytherapist.com well thanks so much for coming in thanks so much for having me frederick uncut is produced by graham cullen emma kerr and me join us next week for an all-new episode